Welcome to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is Episode 6, What is Work? Part 4. In the last episode, we continued our exploration of the question, What is Work? with an examination of the definition of work provided by the theologian David H. Jensen in his book Responsive Labour. We saw how Jensen argued that work was more than the merely instrumental, that it was in fact an expression of obligation, that is, of the demand to live in relational coexistence with one another and the natural world, that itself arises from the very fact of our shared place in creation. We saw that whilst this understanding of work shared some aspects with Wolf's characterization of work as a social activity, It went beyond that characterization by stressing the need for mutuality and solidarity, that work was not just a means to the end of satisfying needs, but also an expression of what it means to be in relationship with the other. Work for Jensen was a mechanism through which humans broke down their self-oriented tendencies in favour of cooperation and attending to relationship. The net result is that Jensen's conceptualization of work as activity arising from relational obligation also attests to the ambiguity of work in human life, to its capacity to be both blessing and curse. Work both binds human life to itself and to the natural environment of which it is a part, but it also holds a potential to be abused as a source of exploitation and oppression. Obligation therefore occurs in order to prevent this negative potential within work from arising, or if it does arise, to enable correction of the injustice that results. Moreover, the demands of relationship place limits upon work in order to prevent human workers and the environment upon which they rely from becoming exhausted, as well as provide space for human interaction so as to prevent the commoditization of work and intra-human relationships. This intertwining of work and rest, not as polar opposites but as mutually complementary aspects of the same totality, reminds us that whilst we might work to live, we do not live to work. Work's value is not its achievement or permanence, but its place within the whole sphere of human life and its flourishing. Work, when it becomes idolised as the central reality of human life or as the measure of human worth, alienates us from both the love of God and the dignity of our creation. It becomes not a response to God, but sin. So in examining both Wolf and Jensen, we have uncovered two of work's key characteristics, 
instrumentality and relational obligation. What other characteristics might be discerned, and how might these advance our understanding of the question, what is work? Drawing on the work of both Wolf and Jürgen Moltmann, as well as other theological, philosophical and secular writers in the fields of work and economics, the theologian Darrell Cosden argues that work, properly understood from the perspective of Christian theology, has a threefold nature. Cosden's thesis is set out in his book A Theology of Work, Work and the New Creation and argues for an understanding of work as the dynamic interdependence of instrumental, relational, and ontological characteristics. The first two elements of this formula are already familiar to us through our quest to develop an understanding of what work is. Cosden acknowledges the instrumental character of work. He recognises that one of work's fundamental purposes is to attend to the needs of humanity and the wider non-human ecology through the products and outputs of human work. Likewise, Cosden also recognises the role which work plays, not merely in the social organisation of human life, but in the relational character of existence and the obligations which that character places upon individuals and society with respect to their coexistence with one another and the non-human ecology. However, to what does Cosden refer when he speaks of work's ontological character? Ontology is the philosophy of being, that is to say, the discussion of what it means to be, to exist, the nature and essence of being itself. When we use the word human, for example, ontology asks, what does it mean? to be human, what is the very essence and nature of the condition or state we call human. Therefore, when Cosden talks about work possessing an ontological character, he is saying there is something about work that links it to the essence and nature of what it is to be human. Or to put it slightly differently, work is part of what it is to be human. Without work, whatever else we might be, we are less than human. Work, according to Cosden's formulation, is part of the very definition of what it means to be a human being. But how does this ontological character manifest itself? Cosden illustrates his point by drawing on the work of Karl Marx. Marx, Cosden notes, argued that work was more than simply a means to an economic end, or a framework for social organisation. Rather, for Marx, work was part and parcel of humanity's social evolution and quest for self-realisation, both as individuals and as a species. Indeed, Marx saw work as a specifically human activity in which humanity created a more human world and thereby realised its existential and evolutionary destiny. This view of work is bound up with Marx's concept of alienation. When work is reduced to or experienced as nothing more than a means to an end, usually economic and usually for the benefit of the owner of work and not the worker themselves, 
This is in direct opposition to the very essence of our humanity. We become cut off from genuinely productive life, or what Marx called life-begetting life, and this separation produces alienation. For Marx, alienation was nothing less than the divorcing of the human worker from the very thing that made work an essentially human activity, namely its centrality to humanity's own drive towards self-realization and evolution. When alienation occurs, work becomes something less than human, and the experience of work dehumanizing. Marx had thus observed that work, through the application of physical and cognitive capacity, was humanity's particular productive creative activity that distinguished human from non-human life, and which indeed made humans specifically human in the ontological sense. Marx used a kind of parable which contrasted the worst human architect from the best and most efficient bee. Both performed tasks that can be described at one level as work, but what distinguishes the two sets of activity is that while the best bee performs their work in accordance with an innate and unreflected instinctual drive of which the bee has no awareness and over which it exerts no control, the architect first imagines in their mind's eye what a particular structure will look like before they even commit it to plans or commence its construction. The result is a product, a building, which existed in the imagination of the architect before it ever took any kind of physical form. The bee, no matter how splendidly it builds the cells of a beehive, has no capacity to imagine, let alone adapt or reshape, the products of its labour. It is this capacity, the capacity to imagine, plan, shape, and direct the final outputs of our activity, that for Marx made work not merely a means to an end, but the very basis by which we exist in the world as humans and not animals. Work is not merely an output of our activity, it is an ontological condition without which we cannot be human. But, Colston says, Marx goes a step beyond this by arguing that even before work became an historically or socially specific experience in human history, humans had been created by nature to be workers. That is to say, the reality of work was a built-in fact of human experience, part of our natural and existential evolution, even before it became an historical and social reality of which we were consciously aware. This is not to deny the economic nature of work, rather it is to stress the ontological character of work, one which pre-existed the practical or hierarchical aspects of work. The pre-existence of this ontological character therefore qualifies and interprets what the place of work is, or should be, in those relationships which are described by economic and social organization. 
The point of Cosden's exploration of Marx's ontology of work is that he sees in it a framework that places the instrumental and relational dimensions of work in an equal and mutually restricting tension, one which the ontological character of work also occupies. Thus, instead of arguing whether work is relational or instrumental in nature, because it is part of the human condition itself, these different aspects of work don't occupy a hierarchy so much as exist simultaneously at the same level, each qualifying and restricting the others, while themselves being simultaneously qualified and restricted. Cosden uses this model of the instrumental, relational and ontological tension of work to argue that work in its richest sense incorporates but also transcends the instrumental and relational dimensions. Being ontological, work has a value apart from, but nonetheless related to, instrumentality and relationality. In essence, work's value stems from the fact that it is built into the very fabric of human existence, an existence which itself emerges from humanity's creation in the likeness and image of God. If this triad of instrumentality, relationality and ontology sounds familiar, it could be because it echoes the doctrine of the Trinity that stands at the heart of the Christian understanding of God. It would be a mistake, however, to press this analogy too far. For while Cosden does argue that the ontological character of work occupies the same dynamic space as the instrumental and relational aspects of work, nonetheless, the pre-existence of work's ontological nature accords it a primacy which, whilst not hierarchical in nature, nonetheless decisively conditions and qualifies the other two dimensions. Christian doctrine, however, clearly asserts that there never was a time when one or other of the persons of the Trinity existed without any of the other persons. There never was a time, for example, when the Father existed without the Son or the Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity are of one being and substance, co-eternal and co-extant. But perhaps where Cosden's model more closely resembles the doctrine of the Trinity is in his emphasis upon the dynamic engagement and interaction between work's instrumental, relational and ontological features. Again, the analogy can't be pushed too far. The persons of the Trinity do not qualify and restrict one another so much as exist within a loving and mutual indwelling. But whereas the doctrine of the Trinity also rejects any suggestion of hierarchy among the persons of the Trinity, Likewise, Cosden's model of dynamic interactivity argues that the different aspects and characteristics of work exist not in a hierarchy of most to least important, but in a mutual live tension where each impacts on the other. This produces a much richer understanding of work, one that both resists the temptation to reduce work to a means of production or a mechanism for social organization and which acknowledges the intensely human reality of work itself. Humans are human because they work. But what makes an activity work is its very humanity, 
its inextinguishable connection to what it means to be human. However, a point in which I disagree with Cosden is that, like Wolf, he argues that work can be an end in itself. Cosden argues that work is a thing in itself, one whose essence is constituted by its having been built into the very fabric of human existence. Thus, unlike Wolf, who argues that work can be an end in itself because it can be experienced as such by the worker, Cosden argues that work, being intrinsic to human existence, just is. It is more than that which can be experienced, but is rather an, an extant reality in its own right. Here I think Cosden trips over from metaphysical exploration to metaphysical speculation. While I agree with Cosden's argument that it is not necessary to experience work as an end in itself in order for it to actually be such, Note, after all, Wolf's argument that just because many workers experience work as dull and tedious, we should not conclude that dullness or tedium are part of work's intrinsic nature. Nonetheless, it does not to me follow that the ontological nature of work makes it a thing in itself and therefore an end in itself. Work is only because humans are. The ontology to which the ontological character of work relates is that of humankind. Work is part of humanity's essential nature. That does not mean it has an existence in and of itself. Work may indeed be more than the sum of its parts, but that totality relates always to the humanity of which it is an intrinsic part and the God whose creative activity caused it to be such. But aside from that quibble, where does Cosden's exploration of work leave us? I, for one, think Cosden has developed a much richer understanding of work than that articulated by either Wolf or Jensen. This is because Cosden resists the temptation to try and reduce the complexity of work to a single element or characteristic. In recognising both the instrumental and relational aspects of work, and bringing them into dynamic interaction with the ontological character of work, Cosden creates a model of work that is both multidimensional and fluid. Work, like faith, like life, is never static or monodimensional, and the extent to which one or another of the characteristics of work is emphasised or not at any particular point in time depends on a wide range of factors and influences. But I think another compelling facet of Cosden's model is that because it echoes some aspects of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, albeit with certain cautions and restrictions, Cosden has performed the more than useful service of reminding Christians of the dynamic interaction between the life of faith and the realm and reality of work. Because Christians understand the nature of God to be not a static homogeneity, but an interactive mutual relationality, thus it is that the very creation which emerges from God's activity cannot be conceived of in simplistic or one-dimensional terms. From this it follows that all the features of creation and human life 
of which work is an intrinsic characteristic, without which we would be less than human, are likewise multifaceted and joined in a complex fluid interrelationality. Thus there cannot be any separation of life into public and private spheres, with the life of faith contained to the latter. The public world of work is part and parcel of the same network of relationships as the private world of faith, and what we do on Sunday or any other day in private worship is as relevant to and informative of what we do in the public world of work as the dictates of economic theory or the demands of marketplace competition. The extent to which the Church participates in this separation represents not only a retreat from the fundamental Christian understanding of God in God's own being, but also an abandonment of the Christian covenant articulated in its faith convictions to live in service to the world and our fellow human beings. Beyond this, however, I think Cosden's model realises a value for work that transcends its mere use value, that is, the value work contains as a means toward the production of goods and services, or the retail value to be obtained from the sale or trade of such goods and services. On the contrary, Cosden's understanding of work articulates a value that resides in the very humanity within whom work exists as an ontological reality. Because work is part of what it means to be human, work is likewise invested with the very dignity which humans themselves obtain from their creation in the likeness and image of God. Thus forms of work which are exploitative, abusive, or economically and socially marginalizing are abuses of the dignity of work and devalue work as a byproduct of God's own creative activity. This constitutes a profound assault upon the very basis of human existence, precisely because it disrupts the relational network between humans, creation, and God, of which work is an intrinsic part. In other words, it constitutes sin, the sundering of relationships between humankind and God in the context of the ongoing unfolding of creation. And again, the extent to which the Church participates in this devaluing of work constitutes the Church's own participation in the sin of human suffering and alienation. And so we come to the end of another episode. In our next episode, I will wrap up this exploration of the question what is work and draw some conclusions about where this journey has taken us. I hope to have the pleasure of your company at that time. In the meantime, I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now.
You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.